Hey everyone, welcome to Expansion Cast. Expansion Cast is a magical podcast I created so people could find simple or unconventional solutions to expand their personal awareness and experience. This podcast is dedicated towards revealing people's divine truth and how that divine truth works its way out into the world, one by one, helping liberate each of us on our personal path to freedom. If you love this podcast, please give us a rating and share. So welcome to Expansion Cast. Today in the studio I have Danielson. Um, I don't know a whole lot about Danielson, although, you know, I've heard a little bit of his struggle and um, and it sounds like a pretty uh, deep and dark place that he went to. And, you know, I've heard a little bit about what he's done to come back to a space of just um, enjoying life. So welcome, Danielson. Thank you. So can I call you Daniel or? Yeah, that's fine. So I don't, have you listened to any of my podcasts? I haven't. No. Okay. I bring on two types of people. I bring on people that have gone through a deep valley of struggle. And then I also bring on people who are here helping others transform. So in a, in a sense, I guess, both people go through struggle. Yeah, I'm thinking I fall into both those categories. Yeah, and most people do. Um, because, I mean, in some sense, there becomes a part of everybody where if they move through the struggle and they get out the other side, they're like, they really want to help others mm-hmm. because they can see how powerful that transformation can be. Um, yeah, so... That's where we are. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, what what was the struggle like? I guess where were you before the struggle? Let's kind of let's get a whole kind of horizon view of who you are or who you were. Yeah, that's a complicated issue for sure. I grew up in the East Coast. I was an Air Force brat and moved around from uh, air base to air base until I was 12. And my dad moved us to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. That was his hometown. And I grew up in a kind of a rough um, fishing related, living on the wharf, working on the wharfs, fighting for survival on the wharfs when I was a kid. Um, School wasn't important to me. I was skipping school to go make money on the wharfs by grade eight. And by my second grade nine, they kicked me out of school because of my behavior and unruliness. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a vocational school and I got two years of marine training. And um, then the fishery collapsed and the oil rigs collapsed and everything collapsed down there in one year. And it was hard times, lots of suicides. um, Yeah, it was just a really directionless place. And then when I was 23, I got noticed that my birth mom in Alberta had signed up to find me. Oh, wow. And so I, I started to uh, talk to her on the phone and my wife, my deceased wife now, but um, at the time she said, well, go out and meet them. So we saved our coin for a year mm-hmm. and I came out to Lethbridge to meet her. And that's my connection to Lethbridge initially. And at that time, I was just like everybody else, a little different, a little odd, but, you know, I was drinking and doing drugs and 
And um, so, what what was the little odd? Like, tell me about your identity back then. Well, I knew I was a little bit different because they used to tease me at karate about being the Buddha because I would always say, you know, things that I would read in wisdom books or. Or I would always look at our training from that perspective of, of Zen and presence. And, that, you know, martial arts was about building character. And a lot of the guys that I trained with and grew up with, martial arts was only about the result. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so even then it was lighthearted. But, you know, they kind of teased me about being philosophical about my training. Yeah, so I started out um, just kind of a wandering military kid. Yeah. Who ended up in a fishing town and was on both ends of the bullying spectrum, and uh, yeah, kind of didn't really have much of a solid identity when I was young. Yeah, just kind of bouncing around trying to find out who you were. Yeah, I was really partying and doing drugs, and and anyway, I ended up getting a a, a young woman pregnant, and it was when my daughter was born and I saw her for the first time mm-hmm. that a rush of emotion came through me and I realized that, you know, I needed to, to straighten out. I had something right now worth living for. So that was when I started to turn the corner, right. clean myself up. Yeah. So it took something outside of yourself to give you some sort of reason. Yeah. I think up until then I never had any real, um, understanding of family but my, I was adopted by two people who did their best, but we didn't have that, um, genetic bond that Mm -hmm. you have and I didn't have any relatives and I felt very alone in the world and then when I saw my daughter the first time I was like wow I have real family now (laughs) I really have something to connect to so yeah yeah Yeah. I think that's a big thing that happens to a lot of people just kind of take life for granted Mm -hmm. and once they see their first their first child it kind of really changes the world for them yeah, and right around the same time, I, I was doing an acid journey, um, not not in a good way, just because, of, anyway, I was just doing acid one day, and I looked in the mirror, and it was like my higher self or, you know, my divine nature came through and looked at me and asked the question, is this what you want for your life? Look at yourself, is this what you want for your life? And I was kind of stunned by that, you know, where did that come from? But then I, I realized that, yeah... This isn't what I want. This isn't a good direction. Yeah. And it was around then when um, I started to uh, take being a father seriously, and I took being a martial artist more seriously at that time. So the uh, woman that you got pregnant, you were in a good relationship with her? This is No, we were in a... A party kind of a relationship. Um, we were we were boyfriend and girlfriend, but we spent a lot of our time drinking, yeah. partying, and arguing. And um, and I was out on a freezer trawler for two months at a time, so I went for four months. And when I came, and we we were on the rocks when I went, and she didn't want me to go, and I actually had no notice. They came at ten thirty at night while I was working in the fish plant, and they said, "If you want to go, you got to go now." Wow! So I had to just jump on the boat and go for two months. And mm-hmm. anyway, she didn't take that well. And um, when 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 I came back in, and I had a month, I had a trip off, which was a two month trip off to decide whether I wanted to go back in the fish plant or back out in the boat, her and I decided we would 
get pregnant and maybe that would, you know, like young people do, maybe mm-hmm. that will save our relationship. So right. at that point, um, I think that's when she conceived. Right. And, uh, Anyway, after that, after the fact that she was already pregnant, there were rumors coming back to me about uh, her being unfaithful, which she says, you know, that that, that that wasn't true. But anyway, there was enough people telling me that I believed it was true. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was pregnant at, by then. And we tried. We tried to make it, but we didn't make it. And eventually um, we broke up. Right, right. Tried to get back together briefly when the baby was born, but some things happened and it just wasn't going to be, wasn't, wasn't right for me. Yeah. So where did you go from there? What happened there? Well, I carried on and and then I met my wife, my late wife, and um, she was a bright light, a really solid, grounded person who for some miraculous reason thought I was a good person. (laughs) a good investment so um yeah so her and I got together and we started to you know raise my daughter a lot of the time we had her on the weekends and things like that and and um up until about four years old when I met my birth mom here and I came out here by myself initially and then my wife and I decided to get married and whatever money we got we'd take to come out here because she always wanted to she was very adventurous and then we started having my daughter in the summers yeah. until she was about 11. And, and that's a whole other chapter where we brought her and my, her birth mom out to live with us. And um, anyway, there's some things there I won't say because it's not, not my business to talk about it publicly. But that didn't work out so well. But I ended up getting my daughter full time nice, at nice. that point. Yeah. yeah. And that was probably a big change for you. It was a big change for everybody, especially my daughter. And she, she was, it wasn't her idea, so she wasn't totally into the idea. And she did, she was young enough that she didn't really know all the background noise. So yeah, you know, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough time. Yeah, yeah. So then, I mean, that sounds like a little bit of struggle and some wins and you know, little, little, little things. And then you go into like some really bigger struggle. And at the same time, I'm going through this huge metaphysical change. My Kundalini woke up. I started having all kinds of strange experiences, energetic. And I was up at night, you know, with energies and paranormal activities. And my wife, she knew it was real because she would experience it too. And and I, and I had never heard of a Kundalini awakening, had no idea what was happening to me. Um, yeah. I was really in a, in a stressful situation. I was dealing with all this other stuff, plus this thing that nobody understood. Mm-hmm. And um, I eventually came across some books in the library. One stuck right out at me. It was the funniest thing. I'm, I'm looking for some kind of help with what's going on with me. And I walk down this row in the library, and there's this book sticking out. It's bigger than the rest, and it's got this big golden figure on it, and it's sticking out farther than the rest. (laughs) And I just randomly pull this book down, and it's called Kundalini, the Serpent Energy. And I'm like, well, maybe these... And it had a picture of one of the Hindu gods. Maybe it was Shiva. I'm not sure anymore. But I thought, maybe they know what's going on because you know they obviously know something i don't know so i opened the book and randomly flipped the book open and i started reading 
And in this paragraph, they're talking about Kundalini syndrome, which is basically all the side effects or things that can go wrong if you're not prepared for your awakening. And I'm reading this and word for word for word, it's everything I'm going through. And I'm like, okay, now I finally know what the hell's going on. I don't know why it's happening to me, but, but this is what's going on. So then I got on a path of looking for gurus you know, to help me, or kundalini experts, sham, uh, not shamas, but, you know, guru lineages. And so I found this lady named Neela in India through the internet, and yeah. she was, from the time she was 10 years old, she was a, a sound yogi, or a kundalini sound yogi, maha kundalini yogi. And she had a guru who at that time was 115 years old, I think, or something. And uh, she took me under her wing and just gave me mantras and brought me in and gave me long distance initiations. And, you know, whether or not there was something to it, if it was placebo or whatever, but it helped. Right. It helped. And I did start to have dreams of these gurus being in my, in my field. So. so I guess what did it help? I mean, I, there's probably lots of people experiencing kundalini mm-hmm. awakening now more than ever. Yeah, I think. They, yeah, they don't even know what it is. Or yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I have people reach out to me and they're like, they hear all these stories about about kundalini awakening and how it can tear them apart and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, the biggest thing is the ego trying to control it, you yeah. know, or trying to get something from it, uh, you know, because it does in in many ways it. It can boost your ego. It can give you that sense of you're special because this is only happening to me, so I must be something special, mm-hmm. you know. And it take yeah, it's a big process. Anybody who's been through a, a long term awakening knows that there's many, many levels and many, many snakes and many ladders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's a big process. And um, and after all these years of of being in that, I can only say that what's changed is I've just settled into myself. Mm-hmm. You know, more than anything, I've just been relaxed into myself. So would you say it's more of a, an awakening to your divine essence? Yes, and a cleanse of yeah. everything in the way of knowing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I've come to know too. Yeah, and yeah. so for everybody, that's a different look. Yeah. You know, everybody's got a different um, swamp to clean. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So... I'd like to know a little bit how how this flows into um, it, you dropped off into a deep struggle when your wife passed, and well, even during the whole time she was sick, it was really a struggle. Yeah, yeah, it was a hard time. So, did, was your Kundalini awakening like before she went into struggle? Yeah, a couple of years before it started, but it was still. I mean, it took it took a decade probably before it stopped being a challenge for me. Yeah, I didn't go through it easily. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was working at Pratt and Whitney when she got diagnosed and it took about three years of medical nightmares to get through all that. And by the end I was a shell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was totally drained. I knew though, I knew like intuitively that if I survive this, I'll be stronger than ever. Right. So she had cancer? Yeah, she started, she found her own cancer in her own breast and they told her you know 95 percent chance you'll never hear cancer again if you do what we tell you to do so she listened to the doctors and me being an alternative healing type person i had all kinds of other ideas but they gave her enough of a guarantee that she would i'm not going to mess with it i'm going to just let them do their stuff and anyway by the time the six months was up she was full of more tumors and they would just say oops we gave you the wrong chemo we'll have to do it all again and 
Anyway, three years later, she died of complications from treatment. Oh, uh, that's sad. Sorry. Yeah, so that was a medical medical mal malpractice in my view. Yeah, yeah. Um, from what I understand, she's kind of the love of your life. Best friend of my life. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting thing because, you know, I've had infatuations and, you know, um, attractions that were much more powerful to other women who turned out to be nothing in my life. Right. And yet my wife, I'd never had that powerful, passionate attraction to her, right. but we were just comfortable with each other from day one. Yeah. My best friend, my bright light and my reason to improve. Mm -hmm. That was the big thing. She was a kind of a person that I didn't want. To, to, I didn't want her to ever be ashamed of me. Right. So she, between her and my daughter, it was a big motivation for me to, to reconfigure my personality. Yeah. To, uh, yeah, get rid of the old identity. Yeah, and and the other thing, there's another side to it. I, I was a Bruce Lee fan from the time I was a little kid. I've been a martial artist all my life. Yeah. And I was teaching traditional Weichiru in those days. And the breathing exercises may have played a role in waking my kundalini up because there's a certain kind of a sanchin exercise that is only found in Wichiru. And it's a deep, um, circular, dia not diaphragmic, but even lower abdominal <laughs> that you do <laughs> and during some of the movements. And it, it's supposed to create tumo or heat in your, you know, or, or cultivate chi, however you want to look mm -hmm. at it. But in my case, I think it may have triggered... The Some, awakening. The awakening, or at least played a role in it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I also had some serious injuries from motorcycle accidents. And so my martial arts career kept getting put on hold by injuries. And by the time I was um, probably in my 30s, I realized I'm not going to be able to do this professionally. So who am I going to be next? And then I was, that was my identity crisis, was I'd put all my effort into this and it, now what? <laughs> yeah. So. So there you are. So there I am at that point. Yeah, <laughs> at that point, my wife was, you know, she passed away, and um, my daughter was graduating high school here in Lethbridge, and I couldn't wait to get the hell out of here. So as soon as she graduated, I packed what I had in a vehicle, and I I headed to the coast. Mm -hmm. And did you find a new you there? Yeah, I found the old me first yeah. <laughs> for a long time. I went through a huge process of struggle and challenge and growth and epic adventure mm -hmm. out there. I mean, I had 30-some jobs. I've moved 12, 13 different places. I just, I experienced that subculture, you know, of ayahuasca and hippie circles, medicine circles and yoga schools and dance temples and all of the things that, you know, the West Coast is known for. I threw myself in deeply to try to, I was trying to heal, you know. Yeah. Were you trying to, were you trying to heal or were you trying to, um, like, disassociate? I was, there's probably more than one level to it. I was yeah. looking for tribe. Like, I was lonely. I was very yeah. alone. I didn't know anybody when I went out there. I had no plan when I went out there and... And I would see certain things in, you know, cultures or uh, communities that I was, I guess I was envious and I wanted to belong, you know, so I, I was, I was looking for belonging as much as healing mm -hmm. and uh, I was looking for identity, you know, I was trying to, to rebuild myself so that if I could come back here, I would come back here as a, as a strong individual and not a burden, right? you know, on others, so. So did you, 
Was there ever a victim going on? Yeah. Yeah, most of my life I felt like a victim, and, and in some cases it was valid. I mean, I, I was at receiving end of a lot of physical abuse as a child. Yeah. And uh, and growing up as a teenager, a lot of pressure and a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, lot, lot of violence. Like, not, not gun violence or serious violence, but just a lot of fisticuff type violence and bullying violence and yeah. psychological bullying violence. And yeah. Yeah, I had to I had to wash all of that out of my system for sure. So how did you wash it out? Like what was what was the big thing that Well, a lot of things. I mean, I, I learned Reiki, so I learned how to tap into the higher energies, you know. I learned about my higher self and my presence and I learned how to tap into, you know, the stillness. I did martial arts and I kept the katas, I kept the forms, and I combined them with breathing exercises and yogic knowledge, and I slowed it all down, and I created a, a therapy for myself. And then there were people, and there were communities that helped me, um, and then there were lots of times where I fell down and had to pick myself up, my ego, and also searching for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. I had many, many lessons to, to love myself, I, you know, to come back to myself that way. And, uh, but in all honesty, the biggest, most um, memorable thing that I discovered was um, plant medicine. I mean, I had done other psychedelics, but I hadn't done them from that really deep you know, intentional place. And yeah, there's a big difference when you're, when you're working with plant medicine from intention to heal versus intention to have fun. And yeah. And so as, as anyone who knows, who's experienced ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a very um, traditional, even, even though it's done in many different ways, but, but it's a circle of love. It's a very loving environment. And the way they do it out there is very musical and beautiful and very loving. And I I went for my first three-day ceremony not knowing anything about ayahuasca. I went to support the people who were doing the ceremony because they were my friends. And, yeah. and they had invited me to ceremony before, and I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. So... Anyway, I showed up there and I had the most um, mind-blowing awakening weekend of my life and it was life-changing. And then I, from that point, because I lived on the island, um, I won't tell you which island or anything because it's still frowned upon, but uh, (laughs) I lived close enough that I was able to um, really throw myself into the ceremonies for a solid year and a half, two years, and... Mm -hmm. uh, and got a lot. I got I got my music from there. You know, I wasn't even a musician before that. So got a lot from that. You know, I hear a lot of people going on the ayahuasca journey. But I also hear a lot of people, you know, going for the trend of ayahuasca mm-hmm. versus the actual call. Which, which happens, yeah. It eventually happens to anything that... Yeah. Yeah. So were you... I guess you were kind of pulled in. Pulled in sideways blindly. and Yeah, I, I, I'm glad I went in blind. I didn't go in with any expectations. Um, I did my small amount of uh, research before I went just to kind of find out that people could throw up and purge and that this mm-hmm. could be very... Like, I, real, I knew enough about it to know it could go a lot of different ways, but that's <laughs> yeah. about all I knew. Yeah. 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 I, went on, I had an ayahuasca journey once too, but um, it was more of a calling. I had no real intention of going, and then it just kind of fell in my lap. And you know, while I was on a on a journey in Mexico, and mm-hmm. there I was, 
mm-hmm. under the stars. The medicine and the spirits behind it are magical beings. And, and I don't think when it comes to that medicine that anything's an accident. No. I think it's well directed. <laughs> yeah, 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 I agree. So I guess what in that, uh, what in that moment changed for you? Well, you know, I had a lot of issues with my dad, you know, um, we, different people, you know, I love, we have a pretty good relationship now and, and I respect him a lot, but we're just completely different people. And that was always an issue growing up. And he was a strong German back, German descent military guy. So his, his idea of no nonsense corporate punishment was what I grew up with. And I was completely the opposite. I was like this gentle little human who was just trying not to be a victim all the time, you know. So I put on a big front and, mm-hmm. you know, create this false persona of of hardness that just wasn't who I really was. Yeah. So. Did, you, did you answer the question about how it changed you, though? Like what? Well, I'm still changing. Yeah, But if we're talking about how the medicine changed me, it woke me up to the reality of spirit and the reality of life after death. Those were two big awakenings because I had lost my sister-in-law to suicide and my wife to cancer and mm-hmm. and other people. A lot of people when I grew up in Lunenburg took their own lives or were killed in car accidents. And so I had a lot of loss that I, and I didn't have any... Um, didn't have any true faith in the spirit world. So ayahuasca actually gave me that. And it gave me something to do next because as I went into it, I had an identity crisis. I was a guy who did martial arts his whole life who couldn't do it anymore, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, couldn't make a living at it, couldn't. And so I was trying to figure out what to do with myself. And um, the ayahuasca circles and the musicians that I met there, they, they inspired me to want to play music in ceremony. I thought, well, I'm going to get a guitar and I'm going to learn to play music so that I can come sing songs in these ceremonies because mm-hmm. that's where it all started mm-hmm. for me. And so, um, the biggest change was it gave me a new identity. Gave you some inspiration. Inspiration to, to recreate myself and, yeah. and it still be on the path of helping others, but not, not in an external ego way. I'm just helping others by helping myself through music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's nice is that you found a different way of helping because some people, you know, they take Reiki and all of a sudden they're a Reiki master and that's mm-hmm. their thing. And that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They, they dive right into that identity mm-hmm. and they kind of get stuck there for a while. I wasn't allowed to get stuck there. I probably was one of the, if not the first male Reiki master in Southern Alberta. Yeah. This was way back in um, 2003 or four when yeah. I got my Reiki master's. But I got it out of desperation to help with the Kundalini syndrome. Yeah. I was told that Reiki would help. And so... Did uh, it? Um, don't know. Oh. Time helped. You know. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things helped. And a lot of things probably that I thought were helping were setting me back. You know, that's the journey. You know, yeah, yeah. That's the journey that we're all on. There's a lot of learning in that journey. A lot of uh, opening. A lot of um, accepting... Oh, you yeah. know, like the, the shadows of ourselves. And I think that's the biggest part of the journey is like diving into our shadows. You know, I've like my Kundalini awakening was really around my shadows. It was like, you know, pulling me into this path of, mm-hmm. oh, let's look at this shadow and let's let's yeah. let's awaken it. And, you know, what's the word for 
dissolving it. No, uh, you can transcend it. Transmute it. Transmute, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, working on helping me transmute different energies. Yeah, I think yeah. that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I still do that. I still help people transmute those energies, but it feels like the energy is pulling me in this way now. Mm-hmm. So somehow people are listening and hearing your story and oh that's what's happening to me mm-hmm. yeah and yeah it's a it's a crazy ride when your kundalini wakes up and and oftentimes having a traditional guru is not helping you either because they're so disconnected from your reality that you know i mean that in my personal opinion the day of the guru is over this mm-hmm. is the day of individual guruism being your own teacher and being responsible for your own journey so yeah but having said that at the time when i needed some kind of support the idea that a guru was looking out for me was comforting right so so i'm not because you were still in a still in a sense where you needed something outside of yourself i needed an expert too you had no idea this divine presence existed right and i had no idea that kundalini was what it was yeah and you know the reality of it and i had no idea how to navigate it and I mean, looking back, I know that you don't have to. It's got its own intelligence, and surrendering is the best way to navigate it. But you find that out after. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's after you've struggled and fought, and you know, yeah. you realize that I didn't have to do any of that. <laughs> that's the journey. That's the cosmic joke. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. I listened to some of your music. Uh, and what p- people might not realize is that the beginning of my podcast... And the end of my podcast actually is your music. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So you sent me a a thumb drive with a whole bunch of music on. And you have yourself playing the, um, what's it called? The didgeridoo. Didgeridoo. Mm -hmm. I believe it's you playing the didgeridoo. And there's some drums and stuff happening there too. Yeah, yeah. That's me and my brother Lance out on Gabriola. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I used. I used pieces of that for the beginning and the end. Yeah. Uh, Don't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) um so where are you today like where are you with your with your flow well i just landed back in lethbridge because i've had a second grandchild so i have a granddaughter and a grandson here now what yeah wow i'm 54 so Mm -hmm. my daughter's oh i think she's 31 or 32 if she ever listens to this she'd probably wish i had a straight answer on that but i'm (laughs) terrible with dates and all that crap but um, anyway, yeah, I, I, uh, I have my parents are getting up. They can use a hand and my grandkids are here. And the coast was always a struggle anyway. Like either you could get a job, but no housing or you could find housing, but you couldn't afford it because you didn't have enough work. And I lived in a van a lot and I was homeless a bit out there. And I was uh, very much moving from job to job, community to community the entire time I was out there, which served me in one way, but was a struggle in another way. So that's interesting. So I hear you talk about homeless and I hear you talk about struggle. And it's interesting to see or hear that there seems to be this odd thing happening because it's like, you're this person who has all this wisdom and knowledge and you've experienced so much at this time while you're on the coast, but yet you're still struggling with this, with the homeless part and, mm. you know, making ends meet, but you're still surrendering There's and a flowing. Piece here. There's a piece to this story. Um, I'm an anti-vaxxer. What does that mean? 
I don't believe in oh. all these forced vaccination programs, and I don't believe in forcing employees to take vaccines. And I worked in pediatrics. I worked in pediatric respite, and I saw many, many vaccine-damaged kids, and I think that it's being really, really under-portrayed accurately on the media and by the professionals. And, and I was being pressured in my caregiving career to take vaccines, so any time they would do that, I'd quit. And I'd move on. And so sometimes I'd, I'd end up working in a restaurant for a while until I got another job where they wouldn't force the vaccines on me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I finally went to Salt Spring where it's their policy to do it, but they don't do it there. So I had two solid years of working as a community support worker there without that pressure. Right. But I couldn't, get, I couldn't keep a roof over my head on Salt Spring. Either I couldn't afford the rent or there just was no place to be. And so... I had to leave Salt Spring over housing issues more than anything. But um, I, I tried to, after my wife died, I tried to be a, a, a caregiver. I took the nursing aid program and all of that. And I did the first year get a flu shot. And I got sick as hell from it. And I said, I can't do that every year. That's crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not responding well to it and I did get the flu anyway so I just said well that's not for me but every year they were pressuring me to do it and finally um, I had enough I was in Victoria working in a place that took care of these little kids and I would see them shoot these little um, invalid kids with the flu shot and these kids would take a real bad reaction to it and they'd throw up and they'd have seizures and they'd have all this stuff and nobody would link it to the flu shot but yet I would see it over and over yeah and I was like I'm never going to take one of those and why are we giving children that have like a year or two to live more and more vaccines anyway this this just doesn't even make sense to me oh it's sad and their argument is well it's to protect the other children well protect them from what you're all shedding live virus you're all contagious after you get vaccinated that's a scientific fact anyway whether you do or you don't I just think it should be a person's choice and a family's choice not the government's choice that's my view on it And when they finally came to me and said, you either need to take your flu shot or you need to wear a mask, I realized that with these little kids I'm working with, that mask is just going to make communication impossible. It's going to make them not able to read my face, so they're going to be afraid all the time. And I did not want to bring fear into it. And I thought the entire thing was just, you know, got out of control. And I just walked out the door and I never looked back. Mm -hmm. And I've been working as a cook or a dishwasher since then so yeah so that's kind of why I ended up homeless in Victoria was because I moved over there for a job and um that's what happened at the job yeah so it was what was homeless be like well I, I had a van yeah. and I lived in a van oh, I yeah. lived in a minivan and I moved around from neighborhood to neighborhood and I <laughs> I, I just did what I could you know, yeah. I, I didn't have a bathroom. I didn't have a way to cook. I didn't have a way to, to really live a decent life. I didn't have a camper van. I just had yeah. a, a regular minivan. So, and I lived like that until it got really freaking cold. Yeah. And yeah. Then, and then I ended up in a, I lived in several situations that are booking themselves with multiple people living in a house out there. Um, in Victoria, I found an old house that had 75 people living in it. 
What? Yeah, rent a room and board house, but it was a giant old mansion built in the 1800s. It was like an Adams family looking place. And, <laughs> and I lived there with 65 or 75 strangers. Yeah. And that's where I was just before I decided to come home. What was that like with, with that was, many people? It was in the pretty house? tough. I mean, I put some stuff in the kitchen, it would get stolen. Yeah. Put some food in the fridge, it would get stolen. You know? Yeah. That's the way it was. And most people had locks on all their stuff, but there wasn't even enough to go around. So, and it was cold. I had no heat in my room. Hmm. And I got through the winter there, but I had no heat. Doesn't sound like much of a benefit over the van. It's a little bit better than trying to find a place to park every night. Yeah. Although over time I found a place where they do let people park in vans. But it took me a while to figure that out. And even then, you're at the very end of the city and there's no amenities around you. You still have to, oh. you know, if you need a toilet in the middle of the night, you're you're in bad shape. Yeah, yeah. So. So you're here in Lethbridge. You're doing some music. You are expanding your awareness of self. Mm-hmm. What's, what's self look like today? Uh, well, I mean... I'm totally okay with who I am. I'm okay with where my life is. I don't feel that victim um, energy. Yes, there's definitely things I would change and improve on, and I know that's going to always be. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a sense of being at home in myself. You yeah. know, just I'm okay with who I am. I don't need to be famous. I don't need to. As long as I can go out and share my music somewhere where people will listen to it, I'm feeling fulfilled that way. Um, as long as I don't have to borrow money from other people, I have enough money to operate, I'm fulfilled. Yeah. And I, I spend quite a bit of time just in you know, practices of one kind or another, whether it be yoga or meditation or um, martial art katas. Yeah. And music. So I, I have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> so what's your favorite um, kind of yoga? Is it Kundalini or? Well, no, the Kundalini that I got involved with was sound yoga. So it was all mantras. Mm-hmm. It didn't have a physical aspect to it. Or if it did, it was lesser emphasized than just repeating mantras over and over. Um, but the yoga that I, I like the most is the in style yoga or the most relaxing long time in a posture, you know, deep. Like, yeah, restorative yoga. Yeah, restorative yoga. And I found a cool class here in Lethbridge to take. So, and I'm into sound healing too. I mean, I love the didgeridoo and I love the crystal bowls and I have a quartz didgeridoo now. And, and I I believe in the power of sound deeply. In Mm -hmm. fact, I tune my guitar to 432 just so that I'm always carrying a natural frequency in all my music. It's all one thing. It's all just me expressing me and I'm okay with it all. It's all good. So, I do you want to express yourself in music right now? Uh, it's fine. I, I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure people are interested to see what that sounds like, what you sound like, what your what your divine essence is bringing out. Okay. Well, I could share a song. Yeah. What do you want? What do you want to do? Like didgeridoo or guitar or what? I don't have a preference. What's pulling you right now in this um, moment? Maybe we could play a little bit of didge. Yeah, yeah. I feel that too. I feel I don't know how it's going to sound through the mic or whatever, but we can give it a try. Yeah. This particular didgeridoo is a little harder to play, but this is the one that Shine made me, and it's right from Australia. So, who's a Shine? What's a Shine? 
Shine Edgar is an Australian didgeridoo master who lives on the coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the first guy who exposed me to this through a healing. It was a powerful experience for me. And I was kind of like, that's for me right on the spot. I'm going to do that. And that sent me on a journey to Australia. And it sent me in a, in a bit of a of a walkabout. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I've been playing the didge ever since. And so anyway, he made this one for me. It was the last blank he had from his homeland. And I ended up with it. That was very beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, that's, um, like I say, that's one of my harder didgeridoos to play because it's just one big old open pipe. It doesn't have a taper or a bell on it, mm-hmm. but it's also the closest to my heart. So yeah, that's the one I usually, I mean, I th- I'm more connected to the tradition. You know, you look back, the Aboriginal people may go back 40,000 years and their didgeridoo is part of their creation story. So that's how long they've been playing a didgeridoo over there. So I feel, you know, more connected to that spirit of all those players through this didgeridoo because mm-hmm. it comes from the same ground, same land. How did you learn to keep playing it? Like, it's like you have an endless supply of air. Yeah, that's the key to didgeridoo is the circular breathing. And um, it's the ability to hold some energy, some air in your cheeks while you're inhaling through your nose and to, and to be able to play that note as you inhale. And for, I'd say, nine or eight to nine out of ten people, that's what frustrates them. That's where they quit. Oh, yeah. But if you can get that technique down, then the didgeridoo becomes very uh, potent as far as a self-healing. As you think about it, it's like doing pranayana. It's like doing yoga, breathing the entire time. You're getting super oxygenated. 
you can express the sound, you can work out your muscles, you can work out your lungs, work out your diaphragm, your control. Everything's about controlling that airflow. So it's a really great exercise if you can get past that technique of circular breathing, which is where people get frustrated. Right. But once you get it, you realize, hey, that's not hard. How come it was so hard? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Is, yeah. is there some surrender in it? Everything in music is surrender. It is. For me, it is. It's about just trusting what comes through and not... Because music is one of these things in our culture where you'll get judged the harshest. And you'll get judged the harshest from people who have no knowledge of what even goes into making music. Right. You know, they, they just, oh, I hate that. <laughs> you know, they'll hear something and it's not what they like. I hate that. That sucks. You suck. Yeah. Right? That's the thing that comes with being a musician is, is you have to just be able to express what's coming through you to the best of your ability to surrender mm-hmm. and just be authentic and make music for yourself first, you know. That's, yeah. that's my belief on it anyway. I was judgmental about musicians at one time, and then I took uh, voice lessons. Well, long story so- short, I think she fired me from voice lessons. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it really uh, attuned my ear for voice. And then hearing people sing after that, I was like, wow, like the skill that it's taking yeah. to do what you're doing, is yeah. ama- it just yeah. blows me away sometimes. It is a... Uh... And it's so fulfilling, you know, I mean, I can't play guitar and sing. Well, now I can, you know, I, I couldn't play a didgeridoo drum, but now I can do both. Yeah. You know, there's always this next level of adding a little piece to your skill and you realize, hey, I've grown, I've grown again. You know, I've expanded my ability again. And it's endless. Of course, with music, it's endless. You master one instrument, there's 2000 more out there you can pick up. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, beautiful journey to just express yourself through sound. So your didgeridoo seems to be, like the sound of it seems to resonate heart. This didgeridoo is, interestingly, it was longer when he gave it to me. When he gave it to me, it had a soft spot in it, but it was a B flat. And I didn't want that rot to to spread, and I had to cut the end off of this didgeridoo. And it was one of the hardest decisions (laughs) I ever made in my life. How am I going to do this? And I can only do it once, and this thing is so important to me. And if I screw it up, like I was, I was kind of, and then I was like, okay, I need to surrender that too. So Mm -hmm. I put the didgeridoo down and I got the saw and I just intuitively picked the spot and I cut it off. And then I put on my guitar tuner. I have one that'll pick up the Hertz and I put it on and it was at a perfect 432D. So I couldn't have gotten a better result. So 432D is, what is that? That's Hertz? So 432 is a heart frequency. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And some people say B-flat is the Schumann resonance, but I think that Schumann resonance fluctuates. But I think at one time it was hanging around a B-flat. But anyway, now it's a perfect 432D, which is perfect for me because my singing voice and a lot of my songs revolve around D. So um, it was just a great result. And again, I just surrendered and cut it once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came out to be exactly what I would want it to be, so... Yeah. What an amazing place we live in. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, these little miracles are just, wow. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. And the funny thing was, I, I went to a ceremony after I cut it, and Shine happened to be there. And he says, hey, you still got that didgeridoo? And I think he thought maybe I didn't have it because I had brought a different one to the ceremony. And he's like, I'd like to see it. And I wasn't sure why he wanted to see it, but I think he wanted to see if I still had it. 
Yeah. And I was kind of scared to show it to him because I cut it off. And uh, I'll, I'll go get it. So I lived on the island. So I went and got it and I brought it back. And and I said, but I said, I, I had to cut it off. And I was like, I hope he's okay <laughs> with that, you know. But I said, it did turn. Anyway, I told him the story. I told him it turned out to a 432D. And he said, ah, I would have cut it off too. You did the right thing. Yeah. So that was that was all worrying for nothing. So, um, let's see. I notice you're wearing a sure shirt. You got- yeah, well, I'm an ohm guy. I'm a divine sound person. I, I'm a person who, if you were to say to me, what's God's greatest quality, I would say his voice. Yeah. You know, his, his ability to send frequency. And yeah. everything is energetic frequency. And everything is moved and stimulated by sound. And so, that's what ohm the Ohm symbol encompasses to me. A long time ago, before Ohm was everywhere like it is now, it was very rare, and you would see it once in a while in a yoga thing, but nobody knew the teachings behind it. They know they didn't know how prevalent it is in the, in the Hindus, in the Vedic scriptures and the sutras and all this. And I would find it everywhere. And all is just Ohm is a major saying, you know, in in Hindu and uh, yogic philosophy is all is Ohm. Everything's just Om. Mm-hmm. And they're basically saying that Om is God speaking. And so for me, I wanted to bring that knowledge back. So I started painting and creating all of these Om symbols. And I've got Om paintings all over Alberta and BC. People that have them don't even know who painted them because I donated most of them. But I just wanted that to come back. I wanted to see more Om. So I thought, well, I'll take it upon myself to put this in the consciousness. And I knew I wasn't alone. A lot of people, you know, are doing this. But I mean, that's the collective consciousness once a person gets a good idea a lot of people get it but uh so i put them all over the place and now i see them everywhere and i see them on the whole generation of young people have ohms tattooed on them (laughs) so it's it's very uh, rewarding to me to know that i was one of the people that planted that seed before anyone planted their seed you know so yeah so that's a little another little rewarding thing is that I, i i i see the understanding of sound frequency really rising in the culture and in the uh somatics um, on YouTube, you can see where they're playing frequencies over a plate, a metal plate and pouring sand on it. And the sand's creating patterns. And they're showing how the 432 creates a perfect geometrical, beautiful pattern and the 440 creates a distorted pattern. Right. So all of our music is coming out in a distorted pattern and they can prove that with this thing. And that really struck me. I was like, well, okay, that shows you that a lot of what I'm listening to is actually not bringing me into my divine nature. It's not actually connecting me to source because source is coming through in a perfect geometric frequency of sound. Mm-hmm. So then I started playing my music and writing my music from that. Right. I. This is going to be an invitation after a quick little story. So quite a few years ago, I went to a seminar in the U.S. Uh, someplace, and I met this Indian woman, just this beautiful divine light, this, and she was at the seminar. And just we were attracted to get to know each other a little bit in the seminar. And then anyway, I hit the airport on the way back home, and I hear this lady call me, and it's her. And she's like, come on, come on, there's this, there's this yoga room. Let's go check it out. So I go with her to this yoga room. And uh, she's like, let's do some oming, which I'd never done mm-hmm. with anybody before. Mm-hmm. And so we sit down facing each other doing So it's toning is what I call it now. But so she's like, so we start off and 
she just looks at me. She goes, no, no, not the North American OM. She goes, the actual OM. So, which is like, starts with kind Three of a syllables, oh. yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, right? um. Yeah. So, she's, so we do that. And she keeps, no, no, deeper, deeper. She's telling me more into your chest, into your heart to start with. So we get there. And all of a sudden, we're both doing this at the same time. And I was like, my whole body was like, just vibrating, getting goosebumps. And mm-hmm. I am just thinking about it right now. And just waking, it's like waking my whole body up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she said, she said to me, she goes, yeah, if you get into all the toning and do them all properly, she goes, you can even have whole body orgasms and different things from toning. Mm-hmm. And that was my, that was my invite way back then. And now I do toning with people and we go through all the chakras and yeah, it can be quite, yeah, quite mind blowing. It's just, you know, our voice is our greatest healing tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, my voice is my greatest healing tool for me. Um, we, we make ourselves sick or, or healthy with how we speak, how we think. So, yeah. you know, the OM is just the purifier. It's this, it's the pure tone. It just penetrates everything and it purifies everything. And, mm-hmm. That's how I see it, anyway. Do you want to do an OM? Do you want to do some toning together, see how that sounds? I don't know. We might have to do a couple tries. I I don't mind, yeah. Do you want to do the three-syllable OM? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, that'd be fine. See how it... I don't know. Let's let's give it a shot. Yeah, it can't hurt. of air <laughs> that was probably half oh my god <laughs> that's probably half yeah <sighs> it feels good though yeah it does doesn't it yeah it even though I, uh, there's no way i could keep up with you no you don't have to in fact silent ohms are sometimes the most potent so you were doing you're doing it a little bit different than what i was taught you're like you were doing like a ah uh, and then you went ah uh, you you or like Hugh, you know Hugh? how the oh, they sing yeah. Hugh and Ekinkar. Okay. I think that that's like the middle symbol of the O, okay, the carrier, huh. and then that mm at the end, huh? Yeah, it was taught. It was like ah um ah um is how I. But you know, it's one of those things where if you do it enough, you're gonna play with it. Yeah, you're gonna give yourself what you need from it. You might just do ah ah. It's just the heart frequency. Yeah. You might just do the first part if that's what you need. Yeah. You might just do a solid ohm. If, I mean, mo- when my first plant medicine ceremony, one of the things that broke my voice free so that I could sing was this powerful ohm that came from emptiness right through me. And it came out and I vocalized it. And everybody in the place was 
like what the hell what's mm-hmm. that what's that big booming sound and it was coming <laughs> through me and i was kind of not doing it it was just happening and it was just cleaning out everything so that i could express myself and that was also you know one of the reasons why i really advocate for the powerful symbol of om because mm-hmm. it, it, it it's the purity of it it's not religious it has nothing to do with a religion it has to do with just the allness of everything and the sound behind everything. Mm. And even if it's only symbolic, it's unifying, you know, even if, even if you don't use OM, but you just understand that OM encompasses all sound. It's pure, pure, purifying, um, teaching, whether you're doing it silently under your breath or whether you're doing it at the top of your lungs or anything in between. Sounds to me, reflective it reminds me like when you're saying that of uh, when i was in an ayahuasca ceremony and i I actually did the full vomit that was like so purifying for me Mm -hmm. it's like i don't know where it came from and it's not like any other vomiting you've ever done exactly it's like automatic (laughs) vomiting and you're witnessing it oh it had it had to be pushed out of me that the shaman was like you know i did 20 some 21 i think ayahuasca ceremonies and i only purged on my second night it only happened to me once so it's not it's not something that happens every time for everybody, but it's a powerful purge, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I, not it's not my usual to come do this, but I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah, and I'd just like to say people come out and see me play music because I'm not a big internet guy. I don't put a lot of music out that way. I'd rather play live. So, so, yeah, Danielson, they can find you on Facebook? Yeah, they can find me on Facebook. I usually announce and I'll go out. You'll you'll see me at the open mics here and you'll see me at the Odd Gig when I'm not working at the Onion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So here in Lethbridge at the Odd Odd Place, uh, you can find Danielson on Facebook and his events there too. Uh, Are you on Instagram? No. Not yet? Like I, I... I, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with promoting myself on the internet because I've had some fruitless results in the past and put out a lot of effort. And, right. and also my music carries a, carries something live that it doesn't carry right. any other way. So I, I would much prefer to just play music to one, two, or 20 people who mm-hmm. are actually there to listen. Mm-hmm. That, that's, my, that's my favorite thing to do. Yeah, the invite for me has been to show up and I think I talked to you about this. Just show up and, and be, doesn't matter if there's nobody there. Yeah. You know. Well, that's the freedom of it because otherwise you're going to care about results. And if you care about results, half the time you won't show up. Yeah. So just show up. Yeah. <laughs> show up for the universe. Show up, sit down, take a deep breath and begin. Yeah. And whatever happens, <laughs> happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but when you're in that place, it's not about what happens, happens because it's radiance. Yeah. It's, it's beauty. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean that's that's what I I live for those moments where I'm sharing something with people, and yeah. you know the veils are down, yeah. the walls are down, and we're all just sharing a frequency and and feeling something divine in our own nature. Yeah. That, that's my goal with music. I had no intention of being a musician publicly. I just wanted to play for beautiful people in ceremonies, but it was just a lot of inspiration from them that you know put this music out there, Dan. Mm-hmm. You know, other people will get something from it. Okay, well, thanks, Raj. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. This podcast is Expansion Cast. Thank you for listening.